Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. The antenna of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos and podcasts is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content of these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Welcome to the podcast. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us this morning and this beautiful January morning. Today is our first event of 2023, our firm's January first Friday free call-in. My name is Beth Mulcahy, and I'm the founder and senior partner of the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. First, I would just like to wish a healthy and prosperous year ahead in 2023. I hope that everybody on the board can get along and work together as a team. My firm currently represents over a thousand planned communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. And I also serve on my board where I live and I have for many years. So I think I bring a good wealth of information to the classes that I teach and to this free call-in because I have seen a lot of different problems over the past quarter of the century. And I like to solve problems and help boards make good decisions and follow the law. And that's one of the reasons why we have this first Friday recall-in. And kind of to that end, you'll see that we have a lot of different questions this morning. Just some background information. Here's how First Fridays work. Um, If you haven't done so already, please submit your First Friday questions in the question and answer box on Zoom or in the comments section on Facebook Live as soon as possible. Okay, let's start out by just talking about our education plans for 2023. We're going to continue on in 2023 with our live virtual First Fridays. So this will be conducted and you need to mark your calendar, the first Friday of every month. We'll be right here on Zoom and Facebook Live to answer your questions, your legal questions regarding HOA and condominium laws. We also are going to be continuing our virtual partnership with Neighborhood Services from the many different communities around the Valley. So check out our website at mulcahylawfirm.com on the upcoming seminars tab for more details on those series of neighborhood services classes. We'll be teaching 12 of those in 2023. I've also thought about our firm's goals for Mulcahy Law Firm in 2023. This is a good time for all of you who are board members and managers in your communities to think about what are the goals for your community in 2023. I suggest that association boards have at least five goals each year and a plan to implement those goals. Um, I'm going to be sharing a worksheet with you that you may want to consider working on with your board at your January board meeting. Maybe this year is the year that you tackle one of those large capital improvement projects in your association that needs to be done. Maybe the pool needs to be replacked and sealed. This is your time to come up with your goals. And a really good place to start would be, hopefully you have a reserve study for your association. Look at what has been slated for 2023 in your reserve. A study to determine what potentially may need to be replaced in 2023. Or maybe look at the past few years of your reserve study on things that maybe you didn't take advantage of refreshing or replacing because maybe the useful life was still there. Maybe this is a year to go backwards and 
fix or repair or replace one of those items that you didn't do in, in prior few years under your reserve study. Um, so again, my office will be sharing that goals worksheet if they haven't already shared it with you. We also are going to be sharing with you our website link showing our upcoming events throughout the year of 2023. And don't forget all of our classes that are virtual and our videos, cheat sheets are all available on our firm's website. Um, and there's a wealth of great free information for all of you if you want more information on virtually any topic. We have over 60 cheat sheets pertaining to associations. We have over 60 videos that talk about all different types of issues that pertain to associations. It's just a great free resource for all of you. Um, last but not least, it's very important that we continue to get online reviews for our firm. And so I, it's uncomfortable for me to ask you for this, but if you're so inclined, we certainly would appreciate any online reviews that you may have if you're a client of our firm or if you enjoy these classes on Facebook, Google, and also on Yelp. Okay, let's jump right into our questions. Okay, our first question is from a board member. Welcome. Um, the contract with our management company includes an attachment A, outlining the fees for reimbursable supplies and services paid by the HOA. However, effective January 1st, the company will begin charging an hourly fee for our community manager. This is something new. In our current contract, the monthly fee we paid for their time and services was included. Can the terms of our contracts be changed like this? We wonder what the monthly fee for service covers. Okay, this is a great question. Okay, so it is unusual in my experience that the management company would be charging a monthly management fee. And then they're going to add on to that an hourly fee for the community manager and administrative assistant as part of the Exhibit A um, to the contract. Now, I, I will say that I have seen in the past that anything like over a certain period of time, so like, let's say the manager will attend one board meeting a month or three hours. Anything over that would be charged an hourly rate of X. I have seen that. Um, and that's actually pretty common um, in management contracts. But just a flat fee for a manager and administrative assistant, that's unusual. I haven't seen that before just as for everything that they do. And I'm not, I haven't seen the contract, so I'm assuming that's what you mean here. A couple things. The contract typically cannot be amended without approval from both sides. So both the association and the management company. And so, you know, from my perspective, one side can't just change the contract unless there's a provision in the contract that allows one side to do that, which I'm confident probably is not the case here. Whenever you look at an issue like this, you have to dig a little deeper. Management company is giving you signals that the manager and the administrative assistant are spending an excessive amount of time on your property. And that's probably why they are wanting to charge this hourly fee. And so, you know, this is a delicate situation. When you go back to them to ask for more information on this, recognize that that might be in the back of your mind that, hey, this contract isn't profitable for us anymore because of the amount of time we're spending. And probably a warning sign, they're going to quit if, you know, you can't, can't work this out. If you push back too hard, it's, you know, likely that they might quit. And I've been doing this for a quarter of a century, so I know what's going on when there's something like this, when I see something like this. So, 
you really need to think through how you want to approach this with management. Maybe to ask for some more information and how it's going to work and what, you know, justification they would have for changing the contract. And if you're happy with them, you want to be extra delicate in how you handle this, because if you handle it in a certain way, they'll, they'll probably just quit. You know your rights. Typically, the contract cannot be changed unilaterally by one party. So go back and maybe ask for some more information on this. Okay, next um, question is from a board member that is a client of our firm. So welcome. Good to see you again. One of my favorite clients. Enjoy working with you. Can we protect preserve funds so that spendthrift boards cannot access accounts for non-reserve projects? Okay, great question. So we have a cheat sheet on reserve funds for community associations. I would encourage that you and your entire board take a look at that. What I would say is reserve funds should never be used for non-reserve items. The only exception to that would be an emergency situation where you don't have general operating funds or savings funds, and there's a project that's an emergency that needs to be handled. Typically, what happens in those cases is that the money is borrowed from the reserve, and then it is paid back, typically within the same fiscal year. And we usually suggest that they talk to their CPA to make sure that they are doing that in a proper way so that it doesn't make things more difficult for the association's financial side. And it just keeps everything clean and that the money is repaid back to the reserve account when the money comes in. And I would advise against that. Okay, our next question is from a board member. The owners of the association have submitted the constitutional number of required owner signatures to recall two of the association board members. I'm sorry to hear that. The board members that are the focus of the recall are the president and vice president and treasurer of the association. There has been no acknowledgement that they received them, although the emails with attached copies of of the petitions were sent with a delivery and read receipts. The board has 30 days to call meeting but should the board at least acknowledge openly that they have received the petition? So we have a cheat sheet that talks about removal of directors from office. Um, and it's the top 10 cheat sheet for our firm, top 10 legal issues in Arizona, number six. And I would encourage you to take a look at this cheat sheet as you navigate through this removal process. In terms of should the board be acknowledging it? From my perspective, yes. They should be because the board should be verifying the signatures and the names on the petition to make sure that they are, in fact, record owners and in good standing. And frankly, the board should be having a town hall to discuss what the issues are and to better understand why people are upset. So short answer, should they acknowledge openly that they've received the petition? Best practices would be yes. You also, as a board member yourself, have a right to talk with your manager and say, hey, I know this petition was submitted. What are we doing? You're a board member and you certainly have the right to do that. Okay, next question. Rentals, according to ARS 31902, owners are required to register residential rentals with the appropriate county assessor. The property is a residential rental. 33-1920-1902C Residential rental property shall not be occupied if the information required by the section is not on file with the county assessor. 
What action can a board take if the owner does not have the residential rental property on file with the county as Side issue, real estate brokers allowing agents to rep properties that are not properly filed would be in violation of the RE commissioner's rules, so real estate commissioner's rules. Okay, good point. I hadn't thought of that angle before. Okay, so what can the board do if the owner doesn't have the residential rental property, you know, register with the county? So I would contact the county and file a complaint. There is a number that you can call with the county. You also can contact the city and make the complaint, you know, that this particular property, all you need to do is give the address. And I guarantee you that the county and the city will look into this because that's lost revenue for them. So the best thing that you can do is just make a complaint and they will investigate that. We also have a cheat sheet just if you're interested on how to effectively work with rental properties. In terms of what information can the association ask from the owner landlord? Um, and we're going to be sharing that with you shortly if we haven't already. Okay, next question is number five. And this is from a homeowner. What are the legal requirements to provide adequate notice of violation to the homeowner? And our management company seems to be inconsistent in getting a letter or compliance violation to the owners, resulting in no record of the violation. A copy of any violation is not included in the homeowner's files. Okay, so the, the question would be, how do we provide adequate notice of a violation to the homeowner? What are the legal requirements? There should be a letter sent to the owner regarding a violation. First, let's back it up a little bit. The board can vote on this at an executive session board meeting, and that's really the appropriate time to do that. Typically, the management company We'll give the board a violation log of all the violations, and then the board will agree on how to handle each violation. Maybe they just agreed to handle it the suggested way that the management company suggests. So that should be done in executive session. And there should be minutes showing that happens. Of course, only the board can see those minutes. Then there should be a formal letter sent to the owner in writing, and that letter should be placed in the homeowner's log file. From my perspective, that's how the notice of violation should be handled. We have a great cheat sheet on enforcement of governing documents that talks about the enforcement process. So I would encourage you to take a look at that as well. Okay, next question is from a board member. Our HOA has an assessment increase effective January 1st, 2023. What recourse do we have if owners don't pay the full amount of the assessment increase? Are we allowed to charge late fees and interest on the full amount as being delinquent or just the unpaid portion? Board member said that our bylaws and CCNRs allow the board to levy a late penalty charge on any co-owner who fails to pay his assessment on best for the due date. All right, CCNRs state that interest may also be charged on delinquent assessments. Okay, so good question. So hopefully your association, as you did this assessment increase, you notified the owners on multiple occasions of the new assessment amount. And this is a common problem this time of the year because a lot of associations due to inflation have exercised the right to increase um, the assessment rate. Okay, so lots of associations have sent a, a new coupon book for owners to pay. As you probably know, there's also a requirement under the law to send a statement of account to each owner every month. So hopefully you are doing that so that they see how much is owed. 
So what recourse do you have? There's a couple of different ways you can handle it. Of course, you can charge late fees for any delinquent assessments. If it's, even if they short it by whatever, $5, it's still, that assessment is still delinquent if it's not paid in full. So you can charge the amount of the late fee. You also can charge interest on the amount that is past due. You'll have to look at the specific language in your documents to charge interest. What I can tell you from experience is calculating interest is not an easy thing to do. So most associations, even if it's in their documents that they have the reason to do that, they typically don't do not charge the interest because calculating it is complicated. And typically they just charge the late fee. So I wanted to mention that. We do have a cheat sheet that's helpful on this topic. It's called Effective Collection of Delinquent Assessments. And I encourage you to take a look at it. Um, my office will be sharing that with you. Okay, question number seven is from a former board member. Is the association required to hold an annual meeting? If a quorum is not met, should an annual meeting be rescheduled to obtain a quorum? Presently, the board did not obtain a quorum and no attempt has been made to reschedule. The board is staying in place for another year, self-appointing themselves. Is that following state statutes? Okay, just as a starting point, we have two great cheat sheets on annual meetings. One, how to have a successful annual meeting. Two, how to plan a board meeting and annual meeting. It's a checklist. Okay, a couple of thoughts. So are, is an association required to hold an annual meeting every year? Yes. Short answer, if your association is set up as a nonprofit corporation, which you know 99.999% of you are, um, you are required to have an annual meeting of your membership every year. What do you do if you can't get a quorum? Typically, best practices would be to try again. So try to reschedule the annual meeting in the same you know year and try to get a quorum at that second attempt. Maybe a lower quorum requirement if your documents have that provision in there that lowers the quorum amount for the second attempt. We give you some suggestions in our how to conduct a successful annual meeting cheat sheet on how to increase attendance and get mail-in ballots back so that you get a quorum. Some things that come to mind would be to have a a raffle, so to speak, where anybody who returns their mail-in ballot would be eligible for a $100 gift card. And that's an incentive for people to fill out the ballot um, so that they can get their name in the hat. You know, if you're in a larger association, you might be able to get more from your vendors, raise the kitty, bring the pot to $500 or something like that, which will make it more palatable for people to return their ballots and get excited about the possibility of winning the jackpot, so to speak. But so you really should be making a second attempt. If you don't get an after second attempt, then typically what happens is that the board members are seated until their replacements are elected. And so whoever, you know, was up for election that year would continue on through that year until the next election. Um, so they're not self-appointing themselves. Typically, it says right in your bylaws that the directors serve until their replacements are elected. Okay, so hopefully that gives you your association some tips on how you can get attendance at your annual meeting and have an annual meeting. This question is for the 2022 annual meeting, and you've already missed that opportunity to have it. It's 2023 now. Um, what I would recommend is you need to really plan ahead for 2023 so you don't miss that opportunity. So 
check out our cheat sheet because we give you lots of good suggestions on how to get better attendance. And it's going to be really important that you have a quorum for the annual meeting in 2023. Next question, number eight, is um, from a board member. Our bylaws and CCNRs define a member of the association as the owner of the home. So it's the deeded owner of the home. Only members may vote or serve on the board. We have some homes that are only owned by one spouse. Our understanding is that a non-owner spouse may not serve on the board. Is there any workaround for the situation since they live there and help pay for expenses as this person wishes to serve on the board? Some workarounds that I've seen is sometimes the bylaws will be amended to say that an owner or spouse of an owner can serve on the board. That's one way to handle it. Another way to handle it would be that the non-owner spouse would have the owner deed like 1% of the property to them so that they technically are an owner and can serve on the board. Those are the most common workarounds that we've seen. But if your documents are demanded and the requirement is that you have to be a record owner to serve on the board, it would be not proper, not legally proper for the non-owner to be serving on the board without making those changes. Okay, question number nine um, is from a board member. We have an issue regarding parking. CCNR states that you have a garage, that if you have a garage for one to two cars, cars must be parked in the garage before you can access our guest parking. Our renter has three vehicles, a car, a motorcycle, and a truck, and one is parked in guest parking. So an owner has parked in guest parking without having a vehicle parked in owner's one-car garage. Are both residents in violation of the CCNRs? Okay, it's hard for me to answer this question because I don't have your CCNRs. But if we analyze this, just plain civil meaning and language, if you have, if they're not parking in a garage, if they're not utilizing whatever space they have in their garage, they cannot do overflow parking in the guest parking. One issue is the renter has three vehicles. So I don't know if there's a driveway that they can park in that would be acceptable under the language of your CCNRs for that third vehicle or not. I'm guessing no, because you didn't mention that in your condo. So it appears that third vehicle possibly could be parked in visitor parking. The board's gonna have to discuss that and, and I need to look at what your documents would say to give you a definitive answer. It's a more clear-cut answer on the owner that has a parking car garage and they're not parking in it. That's a definite violation if they're doing that. So I'd reach out to both of them and find out what's going on and try to work um, out a solution. Obviously, you can't use the garage for storage. And that's probably what's happening here just because we see parking problems all the time. So that person needs to clean out their garage so that they can park their vehicle in their garage. Okay, next question from a board member. How long can a board function without the required number of board members? How do you get members of a community to be on the board? Really good question. So how long can a board function without the required number? I think the more important question is, do you have a quorum? Let's give an example. If you have a requirement to have a five member board and you currently only have three board members, Technically, you still can have meetings because you have a quorum of the board with three board members. If you're in that situation, I still would encourage the board to try to get more members 
by sending out letters to the community, asking people to volunteer to serve on the board, or by calling people and asking them, them if they'll voluntarily serve on the board to get you up to the five. How long can a board function without the required number of board members? If you have a quorum, if you technically have enough, we would still recommend that you try to get the required number. If you're less than a quorum, it's a little bit of a different situation because technically you really can't act without a quorum on the board. So that becomes a significantly more urgent situation in this particular situation or in the situation where they can't get anybody to be on the board is we send a letter to everybody in the community explaining what the legal consequences are if you don't have a board, a quorum of the board or a board period. You don't have anyone willing to serve on the board. And ultimately the result of that would be that the receiver is appointed by the court to run your association. And this is very expensive for associations and will obviously result in immediate special assessment to pay for the receiver. And so once we outline that in the letter that, okay, we don't have anybody to serve on the board or we don't have a quorum of the board, the next step that we can't get volunteers is to to petition the court for a receiver to run our association. A hundred percent of the time, I have had people volunteer to serve on the board. So maybe if you're at that point, you need to contact your firm and help you with that type of book there. Okay, next question um, is question number 11. Can the association president also legally serve as chairman of the architectural committee? So answer that would be yes. Um, remember that in Arizona, under the law, the architectural committee must be chaired by a board member. Okay, next question um, from one of my favorite managers. So good to see see you here this morning. Within our community, we have many board-approved resident-run clubs. Historically, we have had them under the association's EIN and considered them an extension of the association, per se, rather than as a separate entity. Does your office consider it best practices to have them under the association or as separate entities? Have there been any federal state policy changes or laws that would influence this? I think this is a really good question for your CPA. I would say most associations like these clubs or activities that are run by associations, most of them do fall under the umbrella of the association. That's typically how it is handled. But I know your association is a very large association and a lot of these clubs have their own checking accounts and they're receiving income in and out. And in that circumstance, it may be best to have them set up as a separate legal entity so that we're not responsible or potentially liable for any things that could happen when we don't have control over what they're doing. So I would say it just depends if this is a club that was like the bridge club and there's no money being exchanged and people just show up in the clubhouse and play bridge on Tuesday afternoons. No, you're not going to need to do that. But if you have a club that is charging dues or there's a significant amount of money coming in and going in into the their checking accounts, it may be time to have them incorporate as a separate entity. But again, talk about this CPA. Okay, next question um, is from a board member. What percentages of favorable votes are needed to amend an Arizona condominium CCRs? 
we are being told by the manager that the Arizona legislature has changed. Let's see here. Oops, I lost my place in my script. Sorry about that. We've been told by the Arizona legislature that we've been told by our manager that the Arizona legislature has changed whereby 100% of the voter of the owners are needed to vote yes to amend their CCNRs. And that legislative action trumps any of our documents. Is that true? So it, it just depends on what sections you're wanting to amend. So I see that you're a condominium. I know exactly which section you went. I know where it is. I've driven by it many times. And so a short answer would be, it's, there's no bright line rule that says that condominium CNRs need 100% approval to amend them. There is nothing that says that under the law. There is a provision in the Condominium Act that says if you're changing the use of something in the, in the association in your condominium, that you may need 100% approval. And an example of that would be if you're, let's say that rentals are allowed in your community and there's no prohibition on rentals. And suddenly your association now wants to pass an amendment to prohibit rentals altogether. That may be something that would require 100% approval. There also have been some cases recently in the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court of Arizona that put together some additional hurdles for associations that are adding CCNRs, but nowhere is there a bright line rule that says you have to have 100% of the owners vote yes. You need to look at, you need to get with your attorney, frankly, and look at what your amendment provision is in your condominium documents and strategize about what you want to amend and then determine what percentage vote of owners you will need to amend those sections. We have a great cheat sheet on amending CCNRs that I really suggest that you take a look at. It's called Amending CCNRs, a five-step plan, and we're going to be sharing that with you now if we haven't already. I would really encourage you to take a look at that because it gives you a very successful formula on how to amend your CCNRs. One other thing I just want to mention, just as an aside, um, our firm does offer a free 15-minute review for any association that's interested in amending their CCNRs. Um, and we'll do a quick spin through it, tell you what you need, the percentage you need to amend the CCNRs, and give you some suggestions on things that we think might need to be changed. Okay, next question is from a concerned homeowner. And this question is, we are currently attempting to recall several members of our board. Okay, one thing that I always notice on these First Fridays questions is I start to see trends Last month, it was disclosure statements and transfer fees. This month, it is removal of board members. So, okay, our community is comprised of 841 units. We have gathered 120 plus signatures and will be submitting to the board later this month. My question is about the voting process. Do we need to have a yes or no vote? And yes, votes must exceed the no votes to recall with at least 20% of the community votes, or do we just need 10% of the votes only? Okay, so the removal process is a complicated process. It is outlined under Arizona law. As I said earlier in this presentation, go to our cheat sheet called Top 10 Things You Need to Know about Arizona Law. And that's on our website, mulcahylawfirm.com. Number six on that cheat sheet outlines the entire removal process. Okay, so a couple of things to think about. If you have 841 units in your association, you need 
percent of the unit owner. So, it's, and it can be one signature per lot of the actual record owner of the lot to sign the petition to be valid. Now, remember that when the association gets a petition, they're going to sift through that and they're going to pull out and not count any of the signatures from non-record owners and from any owner that's delinquent. When you submit that petition, you better submit a little more than 25% because you might lose some names. So keep that in mind when you're submitting the petition because you won't know if somebody's delinquent or, you know, but you can verify if the person is a record owner by going to the assessor's webpage to verify that they're the owner. Okay, so once that petition is submitted, then that is required. You meet the threshold, 25% of the owners signing the petition. The board does have to have a meeting of the membership in 30 days. At that meeting of the membership, at least 20% of the owners must be present as a person or by absentee ballot in order for the meeting to move forward. So there's a special quorum at that meeting. And that requires you know, 20% of the owners to be present in person or by mail-in ballot. Assuming that you meet that threshold of the 20%, then you go to the actual vote at the meeting. And you have to have a majority of those voting at the meeting wanting to remove the director or directors. A majority means that, you know, the yes votes will have to exceed the no vote. And so this is a complicated process as you navigate through it. You definitely should, the association's attorney should be involved. And sometimes concerned owners bring their own attorney to make sure that everything goes well to that removal meeting. And the attorney for the concerned homeowners also, you know, helps those owners through that process. If you need the name of an attorney that can help Homeowners in this process, um, our firm only represents associations, of course. I can give you the names of a couple of attorneys that would be able to help you with that. Okay, next question from a board member. Our CCNR state board shall have the power to require each unit owner at his or her expense to carry personal liability insurance covering damage to property or injury to others. Is this the same as homeowners insurance? And does this allow the board to require owners to submit proof of a current insurance policy to the management company to be kept on file. So this is an interesting question. Typically, I believe that you're a condominium. I recognize your name because I, I think that you have done some work with our firm. And typically, most associations have bare walls coverage or sometimes they're all inclusive. It just depends. But typically in a condo, you have contents insurance for anything from, you know, the bare walls inside the unit. It's unusual that you're also going to have to have personal liability insurance covering damaged property or injury to others. But I've seen a number of different CCNRs over the years and I have seen this in there. The way that you worded this question is that the board shall have the power. So I don't know if it's a requirement or board, you know, has the power to ask for it. I don't know if the board's exercised that power or whatever, but anyways, the bottom line is this is not the same as contents insurance. It's different. It does allow you to make them submit proof of insurance. No, the only thing that could require that would be a CCNR amendment, making them give you that proof of insurance annually. We have a great cheat sheet on this topic. I encourage you to take a look at it. It's on insurance and it talks about the different insurance and associations. And we're going to be sharing that with you if we haven't already. Okay, next question, number 16. 
We are a small HOA and need to change our CCNRs to prohibit short-term rentals. A couple things. We have a great video on this, which we're going to be sharing with you shortly. Uh, we taught a full class on this topic back in September 2022, and we're going to be sharing that video with you now. You can also find that video on our website if you're watching this after the fact. We also have a cheat sheet on amending CCNRs, which I just talked about. And the flip side of that is implementing rental restrictions. Short-term rentals is a little bit of a sticky wicket right now in terms of how you structure the amendment. There's a case that was recently decided that may impact this in the Arizona Supreme Court. And we just want to make sure that the way they implement it is bulletproof and that you're doing it the right way. Okay, next question. Number 17 from a community manager. As a self-managed HOA, only 28-unit townhome association with part-time admin, is there a regulation stipulating that the HOA must provide monthly invoices and a receipt for monies collected from owners? Current communications are handled by email or phone calls by a part-time contracted admin. Financials are provided if requested. No invoices or receipts are issued monthly. Okay, so as a starting point, I have a great cheat sheet for you for self-managed associations called the Basics of Self-Managed Associations. And that's just a good overview if you are a self-managed association um, on things that you can do to make sure that you're following the law. Okay, to answer your question specifically, because you have a part-time administrator working for your association, it could be perceived that that is like a management company. And there is a law that requires associations that have a management company and then are over a certain number of homeowners to send a monthly invoice to their residents. And so I would probably need to find out a little bit more about your association in terms of what are the manager's responsibilities, the admin's responsibilities to see if this in fact would apply to you. I'd need more facts, I think. And so give our office a call. We're happy to look at the statute together with you. Um, and there is a statute that pertains to this. I'm not sure if you're a planned community or townhome. It's in both the Planned Communities Act and the Condominium Act. So we'll need to also share that with you when you contact us. Next question. A neighboring car repair shop is causing a road and intersection to be dangerous by using street parking all around our small neighborhood. The cars take up public street parking in front of our townhomes and block incoming traffic sight lines while turning onto a major roadway. They also illegally park under to five Monday through Friday signs along both sides of the street, which causes congestion and difficult access to our homes. Is there anything that can be done? Okay, so I would start by contacting your city, police precinct, and find out if there's anything that they can do to help you with the situation. I also would consider having your law firm send that business a cease and desist letter asking them to stop doing this for the reasons that you've cited here. Okay, next question. Question number 19 from a homeowner. Our association on occasion has town hall meetings to discuss issues going on in the community. We have a board of nine members. Can a quorum of board members attend the town hall meeting without taking minutes? No business or motions are made and the board members are not in charge of the meeting. The meeting is posted, but not called a board meeting. 
Okay, so first things first, we have a great cheat sheet on Arizona Open Meeting Law, which I think you should take a look at. It just outlines the specific requirements for open meetings under Arizona law. Um, so short answer would be, I do feel that this meeting, this informal town hall meeting, this is considered a board meeting because a quorum of the board is attending and initiation matters are being discussed. The open meeting law actually talks about something like this, where it's like a planning meeting or a meeting where you're not making decisions. It's still considered an open meeting of the board and quorum of the board is there discussing association business. Short answer, this should be noticed as a board meeting. You could call it board meeting slash town hall meeting. If you have a quorum of the board present, then association business is being discussed. Okay, question number 20. And I'm just going to take a look at how many questions we have. So we're at the halfway point. We have 40 questions. We're on question number 20. A client of ours. So great to see you here this morning. Board elections. If a community member returns their ballot but chooses not to vote for any candidates, does the ballot still count towards a quorum? So short answer is yes, it does. To be 100% sure, you may want to add a section to the ballot a sentence that just says, if you return the ballot without voting on it, it'll be counted towards the quorum. But it's not necessary to do that, but sometimes it's good just to be very clear on that. Okay, question number 21. This HOA processes some payments for assessments via credit and debit card. Um, we have heard that some states prohibit passing on merchant promising fees to the payee as part of the transaction. We wish to do so as our use of card processing is very little. Does Arizona allow the addition of the processing fees to a transaction if the payer is advised of the additional fees being added onto the charges? I don't know the answer to that. That's out of the scope of my area of expertise, frankly, because I don't do that type of commercial banking law. What I would I have seen this, though, in Arizona. I have seen associations that take payments by credit and credit card, and I have seen that how they're handling it is they notify the person when they're doing the transaction that there's a processing fee. This would be actually a great question to you know look up online or to contact the attorney general's office. They should be able to give you the answer to that question. Okay, next question, number 22. People that live in our condo complex raise money to buy Christmas presents for families in need and also give money to a local veteran group. To raise money, we have a bingo game and a 50-50 raffle. No one from outside the complex is invited to come. We will also have alcoholic drinks, but not charge for them just as donations or tips. Is this okay to do? Huh, I feel like this is a bar exam question. <laughs> Because <laughs> there's lots of issues here. Okay, so I love the idea that you're raising money to buy Christmas presents for families in need and you're giving money to the local veteran group. That makes me so happy as somebody in our industry that associations are doing things like this to help communities because honestly, that's really what this is all about and life's all about. So good for you that you're doing that. I hate to be the wet blanket but I am a little bit worried about the bingo game and the 50-50 raffle. But I'm not saying there can't be a pivot or a workaround. And so there are some gaming laws in Arizona that we need to be mindful of. I would recommend that you contact the state of Arizona to find out specifically 
whether or not the way that you're structuring the bingo game and the 50-50 raffle is okay and legitimate under those gaming laws in Arizona. A lot of associations that run bingo games, all the money goes in and out the same day so that you're not considered like a casino. I know that's how a lot of associations currently run bingo, but you need to go over the specifics on how you're doing that. You can call it anonymously so that they're not going to like red flag your association or anything and find out if how you're doing it might be possibly violating gaming laws. What you could do is have a separate drive each year, like a fundraising drive to work on the Christmas presents, the gifts for the veterans in need, and have donations be totally separate from the bingo game to make that work in the future. If you are having alcohol drinks and you're not charging for them, you may want to also check with the state to make sure that that is okay. Um, I'm assuming it is, but I have a little bit of a red flag in that who's paying for the alcoholic drinks. If it's YOB or if the association is paying for it, if the association is paying for it, that may not be a proper use of association funds. I hate to be a white blanket, but I do need to raise that. So lots of questions and issues on this question. Sorry that I'm pushing it back to you and suggesting that you contact the state of Arizona gaming but that's something that I think you really should check into. With regard to the alcohol drinks at an association event, you may also want to check with the insurance agent to see if you know there's any extra liability that that may be creating. Okay, the next question, 23. Let's see, how do we determine who is the member or owner of a lot when it has been sold under contract? If the contract seal agreement has been recorded with the recorder's office, and the agreement state that the buyer has an equity interest in proportion to the amount that has been paid towards the purchase. Does that mean that both the seller and the buyer hold a record interest in the lot? Are restrictive documents and bylaws find owner as each person holding a record interest in a lot? And if more than one, all are members. So first I would, you want to look at the deed for the property, of course. Then you also want to look at the sale agreement that's recorded. This is a tough question when these come in. And I have to look at the language in the agreement, meaning the contract sale agreement, to see if, in fact, the down payment is, in fact, meaning that they have a percentage of ownership. So it's a, a complicated question without actually seeing the language in the contract sale agreement and then comparing it to the language in your CCNRs. Based upon what you're telling me, it does appear that this person could be defined as an owner, but I'd have to verify that by looking at everything. Okay, the next question from a client of ours. Great to see you. Our former client of ours, former board member. Okay, a ballot member had been approved by the community two years ago. There is now a new ballot measure in this election cycle that proposes to amend the original ballot measure. I take issue with the language in the event that the amendment fails. The election materials state that a no vote means that the original ballot measure from two years ago is then rescinded and the initial capital expenditure is de-obligated. Typically, if an amendment fails, then the original measure stands as originally approved. I contend that the new ballot measure was not properly written to cover a no vote. So if you have, let's say that you have an amendment 
or you do a ballot to vote on something and circumstances change where, you know, that particular vote is moot because there may be some circumstances that change. And so a second vote is sent out. It's hard for me to comment on this because I'm your legal counsel for the association and I can't do that on you know, a public forum like this. But generally speaking, if something, a ballot measure is passed and circumstances change, which make that ballot moot, it is perfectly legal to have a second ballot to address the change circumstances. Okay, question number 25. How do you enforce return of CCNR acknowledge form, acknowledgement forms under ERS 33-1806? Okay, so this section um, pertains to recent units um, and the information that the association is required to provide to buyers regarding the association. So as part of that, there is an acknowledgement form that the buyer signed, and it goes something like this, like, I acknowledge that I purchased a lot or a unit in an association, and I'm obligated to pay assessments. And if I don't pay assessments, I'm potentially going to lose my property through a foreclosure sale. That particular section, it doesn't give us teeth to send to give it back to us to force the title company or the buyer what we typically will say is we will follow up with the title company and ask them to provide us with it. And we'll follow up with the buyer if they don't provide it to us. But we don't really have any enforcement teeth if they don't do it, frankly, which is unfortunate. Okay, next question, number 26. I'm a board director and per our bylaws, either the president or any two directors may call a special meeting Myself and another director submitted a request for two special meetings. One meeting was granted and the other received no comment or action. Is the board or president acting appropriately and legally? Okay, it appears that under your documents that a board member, president, or any directors can call for a special meeting. It appears that you and another director requested two special meetings. And you want back-to-back special meetings. I mean, I guess my question would be, why don't you just ask for one special meeting and have two topics discussed, which may have been what happened. I don't know. One meeting was granted. It's hard for me to comment on it, but it is unusual to ask for two back-to-back special meetings. The time to raise that would have been at the actual special meeting. Be like, hey, wait a minute. We wanted two topics discussed at this, but it's neither here nor there. I'm assuming these are special meetings of the board too. It's not clear, but I'm assuming you're not asking for a special meeting of the membership because usually that takes a higher threshold to get a special meeting of the membership. If the board doesn't comply with the requirements and call a special meeting, that is a problem. They need to do that. Um, they are not being appropriately and legally. So if two of the members of the board want this and you're entitled to this under the bylaws, they should grant it. Okay, question number 27. How do you find an accounting firm replacement, ASAP? For a referral, you can email me at bmulcahy at mulcahylawfirm.com and I can give you the names of several accounting firms that work specifically with associations. Question number 28. At the last open meeting, I presented and highlighted that the Arizona statutes state that notice of open board meetings must be accompanied by an agenda for the meeting. Our board has not done this since the current president was elected. Having so informed the board, if the next meeting does not have an agenda included with the notice of open meeting, 
would this conduct qualify for removal of the president from office? Okay, so a couple things. Arizona law requires the agenda to be available to members at the meeting, at the actual meeting. And so that's a requirement under Arizona law. Arizona law does not require a copy of the agenda to be provided with the notice of a regular board meeting. So there's a distinction on that. So you don't have to have the agenda with the notes. Now, of course, if you look at any of my publications, I'm suggesting that because the notice of the meeting, the regular meeting of the board, it should have enough detail about what's going to be discussed so that owners can make a decision as to whether or not they want to attend the meeting because they know the topics. Now, the easiest way to make the topics known is to provide the agenda, right? (laughs) With the notice, that's best practices. But the law doesn't say you have to give the agenda with the best meeting. So there's probably a little loophole there. I don't know the dynamics that are going on here. And I don't know if maybe the new president was just trying to get sea legs and doesn't know that this is maybe something that's been done in the past and people really want this. I like to think the best of every situation. So I'm hoping that that's the case. I want to remind them that this would be best practices and a good idea. And if they don't give you the agenda with the notice of the meeting, they at least have to provide you with specific information about what's going to be discussed at the board meeting. And then the agenda would have to be given to everybody who actually attends the meeting. Based on your question, you know, I don't think this qualifies as reliable of the president from office. Um, I just think that there needs to be better communication. Question number 29. Our community is a townhouse community made up of three unit types. There are single-story duplexes and two-story fourplexes. The fourplex is two three-bedrooms and two two-bedrooms. Some of the three-bedroom units are having structural issues of a rotted beam. Our CCRs say that everyone pays for issues, but I understand there is a state statute that says that if an issue only affects a segment, one segment of the community, a special assessment can be placed on just those units, not everyone. Is this true? Okay, so I first would have to know whether or not your association is a condominium or a planned community, and I'm not sure. I don't know the answer to that based upon the question. Um, I know it says you're a townhouse, but sometimes townhouse townhouses can be classified as either a condo or a planned community because there's no legal definition of a townhouse under Arizona law. I think I know where your association is, so I think you are, in fact, considered a condo. Um, but I don't have, I haven't seen your documents, so I don't know for sure. Okay, a couple things. If your CCDRs say that everyone pays for issues like this, and that's a general statement, but I think I understand what you're saying, that these type of issues are the homeowner's responsibility. Obviously, that's something that's important and that could require the owner to pay for it. There also is a section in the Condominium Act that talks about the same topic that the amount can be passed on to that owner if it only affects that particular owner. So this is a complicated question and I would need to see the DCNRs. I'd be happy to do an opinion for you on it, give you the state statute, the condominium act that talks about this, contact our office. Okay, question number 30. From a homeowner, can a renter or resident serve on an HOA committee or board of directors? And if so, 
What are the requirements or conditions when not stipulated in the CCNR's bylaws? Okay, can a renter or resident serve on the board? Okay, so a couple things would be what do the bylaws say about who is able to serve on the board? We kind of had a question on this earlier in our presentation today. Typically, it is record owners are allowed to serve on the board. Committees, it just depends on what the, the documents say about committees. It may be possible that a non-owner could serve on a committee. If it's not stipulated, you're saying that what are the requirements when not stipulated? I mean, it's really unusual to have a non-owner serving on the board. And I would be very surprised if your documents didn't address that. It's 99.999% of the time. CCNRs as a bylaw say you have to be a record owner to serve on the board. The committees, I can see that's probably a little bit looser and not always say that committee members have to be a record owner. But again, I'd have to look at your documents to give you a more specific answer on that. Unfortunately, I'm limited by what I can say here today because I don't have your documents, but it's possible that a committee member could render or render that's an owner. But I have to look at your documents to give you a definitive answer. Okay, this question is from a homeowner. At our annual meeting, we'll be electing for board of directors. We're being asked to obey new Arizona statutes regarding political signs stating it may only be placed on our property to include our front door and windows. Is a public yard visible from neighboring property, whether in front, beside, or behind the residential dwelling considered our property? What about the walkways? Okay, so this is the first question I've had since the new law came into effect on September 24th, 2022. Just a quick recap, political signs can be posted placed on an owner's property for board issue. Time that a ballot is sent out to the owners regarding an HOA or condo issue, there can be signs placed on the owner's property to, if they so choose, they can put up a sign regarding this particular HOA or condo issue as long as the ballot is in play. Okay, it's it's almost like foreign to me to think about this because it's just, it's, I was surprised when the law was passed because, I mean, I know I've been working in this industry for a quarter of a century, but I was wondering if this actually would become a thing where people would put up signs regarding HOA issues, but now I'm seeing it's a thing. Okay. We got to look at where can you put the sign? I don't know. It appears that you're also a townhome based upon the name of your association. If that townhome is classified as a condo or a planned community, I'm guessing you put in here that it can only be placed inside the windows, the front door, that you probably are a condo. Um, but if that's the case, it really can only be on your in your windows or possibly on limited common elements, which are your exclusive use area. The public yard doesn't sound like this is a place that you can put it. And the walkways doesn't sound like this is a place you can put it. Now, if I were giving an opinion on this, I'd have to look at your documents. If your association wants more information on that, please reach back out to me. Okay, next question, number 32, a member of the community in HOA. The association may charge a transfer fee whenever a lot is transferred from the present owner to a subsequent purchaser for value. Said transfer fee shall be collectible at the close of escrow in the same manner and subject 
to the same lien rights as an annual assessment or as the transfer of ownership is not scheduled through a close of escrow, then shall be due and payable upon the date of the deed transferring ownership of the lot has been recorded. Is this legal and collectible as written? Okay, so I'm assuming this language is in your CCNRs. And it says, okay, it should annual assessments. The association can charge a transfer fee. Such transfer fee shall be collectible at the close of escrow, same manner and subject to the same lien rights. Okay. It's hard for me because I don't see the totality of the section. Like I like to see the full CCNRs to look at, is there a sentence before this? Is there a sentence after it? I want you to look at our cheat on transfer fees and disclosure fees, which really is very, would be very helpful in this situation. So associations can charge a capital contribution fee or a, a transfer fee under certain circumstances. I don't know how much you're charging. So that also would be important for me to know. Is this a de minimis amount or is this like $5,000? The things that cause me concern on this are that there is a statute in Arizona that requires very specific language for a capital contribution fee or a transfer fee. And I'm not sure that this language, actually I know this language doesn't cut it in terms of what's required under the Arizona statute for capital contribution or transfer fees. Now, that being said, if this is just a de minimis fee that you're charging, we might be able to argue under the Nonprofit Corporation Act that hey, this is a transfer fee under the Nonprofit Corporation Act and by de minimis, 100 bucks. I have seen cases years ago where trying to charge a transfer fee that was like $1,000 like this was not legit. Court, superior court case, not my case, but I read a minute entry on another attorney's case. Here's what I would say. I need to look at your documents. I need to find out how much I'm charging. I would be very cautious on this um, legal advice to determine whether or not the fee is legal to be charged. And is it something that potentially is violating the other law that talks about the capital contribution fee and this very specific language that you have to have in order to charge the fee in your CCNRs? Um, and take a look at our cheat sheet on disclosure statements um, and disclosure versus transfer fees because it outlines the very specific requirements of both of those statutes. Okay, that's um, a subcommittee that does not meet on a regular schedule and does not have a quorum of board members on it need to fill the open meeting guidelines specifically regarding giving 48 hours notice to the community. Based on what you're telling me, no, they do not. So if you don't meet on a regular basis and you don't have a quorum of board members on it, you don't need to follow the open meeting laws and get 48 hours notice to the community. We have a great cheat sheet on committee basics, which we're going to be sharing with you that talks a little bit more about the legalities of committees and how they function. Okay, question number 34. We are a small volunteer board serving 80 owners. After notifying one realtor that we most likely would not approve facilities contained in a sketch for several reasons, we received the same sketch as an attachment to an email the following statement. I have received a formal offer on this property. There is a contingency on the approval of the house of the horse facility set up in writing within 30 days. Please review the attached plan and respond in writing as to your requirements. 
The request does not come from an owner. Actually, there is no request. No plan is being submitted and the sketch is inadequate and contains a case we are not going to. Can we just say no or what should be our response given these limitations? Okay, this is sticky. This is almost like a bar exam question too. Okay, so first of all, you you definitely do need to respond. And I would respond in a timely manner because she seems to be setting you up with this 30 days requirement to respond. I would just do exactly what you put in here. Hey, this request, you know, cite the section. You may even want your lawyer to respond on this because I feel like it's set up. You might want to reiterate what the provisions in your CCNR say about architectural review. And you know that the plan was submitted by, not by an owner, but the sketch, why it's inadequate and that you likely would not approve this and why, even if it were submitted by the owner. We just want to have a good paper trail on this because it does seem like she's trying to set you up. He or she's trying to set you up. Okay, next question, number 35 from a community manager. Recently, the concern has come up about the role of the board of directors role as board liaisons for committees in our resort. I could not find a cheat sheet addressing this concern. Sometimes it seems that board members overstep their boundaries and want to involve themselves like an actual committee member. I hope you can give me some clarity about the role board member needs to follow. Okay, so we've got board members being board liaisons on committees. Now remember that the architectural committee needs to be chaired by a board member. So that's that to think about. You know, I don't really have a specific sheet on this concern that you've raised. I'm not sure what you mean by board members or stepping their boundaries and wanting to involve themselves like an actual committee member. I don't know exactly what that means. I need more information. So if a board member is going to a committee meeting, their responsibility, it could be a committee member, is just to act in a professional manner and recognize that they're wearing their committee hat when they're there and not their board hat and stay in their lane, so to speak, for that. But without more facts, it's hard for me to answer that question. Okay, question number 36. This is from a homeowner. I'm a homeowner and a condominium community wherein both the board and the management company do not announce or hold board meetings so all homeowners can attend. If held, the meeting is limited to a few homeowners. The management company also does not respond to document requests. How can we use the HOA attorney to have the current board and management company removed? You you really can't use the HOA attorney as your attorney, right, to have the current board and the management company removed. What I would do is as a concerned homeowner, I would write a letter to the attorney and say, you know, I'm a concerned homeowner. I understand you're the attorney for the HOA. And these are some problems I'm seeing with the association. That's one way to handle it. And that attorney really has a responsibility then to talk with the client about this issue. Another way to handle this would be to have the group of owners who are upset about these issues, get your own attorney and have the, your own attorney help you get with a removal process or a letter to the board regarding these issues. And if you need the names of any attorneys that represent only owners, like I said earlier in this presentation, I'm happy to provide that to you if you contact our office. Next question, number 37, does Maricopa County require homeowners who rent out their property 
to obtain an insurance policy or permit? If so, where could we call to verify if one HOA member has the proper insurance? Okay, so I'm not aware of any Maricopa County requirement. There is a requirement under the laws that just went into effect on September 24th, 2022, that talks about insurance, obtaining proper insurance, and it could be an issue that the city, town, or municipality is requiring. And so I guess what I would say, I'm assuming that's where you're going on this, that you saw the new law and you want to know if the owner has proper insurance. So I would call the general number for Maricopa County and I would ask to talk with their neighborhood services department um, and find out if they have passed any sort of an ordinance that requires owners who rent out their property to obtain insurance and possibly the permit that was talked about under that new law that just went into effect. Probably neighborhood services would be a place to look. Also, you can look at their ordinances online and see if there's been any recent ordinance changes since September 24th that may address this issue. Um, but I don't know off the top of my head right now whether or not that is the case, but it, it's a really good question. And I'm going to ask somebody in my office to look into that for when we teach future classes on the new legislation that was just passed. Okay, next question. We are an owner-occupied complex. A new homeowner has added a person as a 1% owner. So they are within our CCNRs. A second homeowner has now added a 1% ownership to a person that appears they are renting to. How can we correct this problem as we update our CTRs? Gosh, I, I really don't know because we have no control. If somebody is giving 1% of their property to another person, there's really nothing that we can do to change that. I mean, I guess maybe what you're trying where you're trying to go is can we say that you have to have 100% ownership or you know, you can't give less than 5% ownership to an owner? I, I think that would be something that might not withstand a court challenge, frankly. So I wouldn't, at first glance, I wouldn't advise our associations to do that. Okay, can a owner request a copy of financials with a breakdown of who, to, and for what, not just totals? Of course, under the records request law, an owner can request a copy of financials for the association. It sounds to me like you need to be more specific in what you're asking for if you want to know who the, I'm assuming who money is going to, et cetera. So if I were you, I would ask for a copy of the bank statements for the association. I would ask for a copy of the check register. I would ask for a copy of the assets and liabilities on the financial statement. Let me think if there's anything else. The year-to-date budget, I would ask for a copy of. And that should give you the information that you're looking for. Okay, last question. And it's it's 10.30, so we're making good time here, right? Okay, what is the maximum penalty or fine the board can institute for a violation of an owner rent near unit less than the minimum day, minimum 30-day requirement per day fine fee once the second renter arrives? Okay, typically there is no maximum. What the statute says is that we can charge a reasonable fine. So how do I define a reasonable fine that I can defend in court? I think a good fine would be however much they're charging for the time that they're there violating the minimum 30-day rental period. So, you know, let's give an example. If, if you're charging $500 a night and it's supposed to be doing a minimum 30-day rentals, 
and somebody comes in for four days, you know, I think a good fine would be 500 times four because you'd be able to justify that. Why'd you pick that fine amount? If a judge asked me in court, I would say that's how much they gained by violating the minimum 30 day rental. Um, so it is a fluid amount because the statute just says it has to be reasonable. So reasonable is, can I justify this in court if a judge is asking me about the amount that we charged? Okay, so that concludes our session for today. First, I hope you all have a great 2023 and I hope that your associations are successful. I don't worry too much because those of you who are here really care about your associations and are want to make it better and are very enthusiastic and asking questions. Um, so I commend you for being here today and wanting to make your communities better. We had over 50 attendees today, five zero attendees, which is awesome because the first week of the month, first week of the year is always a little bit quieter in terms of our first Fridays. So this year we started off with a bang, thanks to you. So thank you very much. Um, we also had many more live viewers on Facebook Live today. So thank you also to our Facebook Live viewers. I want to just remind you that our legislature is going to be in session very soon. So they're going to be starting their legislative session in the next few weeks. And as always, our firm is going to continue to very carefully watch the bills that are introduced pertaining to HOAs and condominiums. While the legislature is in session, our firm posts on the homepage of our webpage an update every week with all of the bills that are being introduced and um, a summary of the bills and as it progresses, we also have a column that shows you where they are in the process. And so I just want to remind you that it's that time of year again. Our legislature is starting up again, and we will be monitoring again as usual. Check out our website for our future classes at mulcahylawfirm.com. And don't forget our next live virtual First Friday event will be Friday, February 3rd. So mark that on your calendar, same time, 9 a.m., same plan throughout all of 2023 on our first Friday. So hope to see you during the month as we start off staying with a lot of new classes for 2023. Happy New Year, and I hope everybody has a wonderful weekend. Take care. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. 